Welcome to the Freedom to Learn podcast, exploring freedom, autonomy and social justice in education. This recording was made at the 2020 Freedom to Learn online forum. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Freedom to Learn Festival. Um, This morning, we have got a panel of educators under the umbrella of diverse educators. And the key question we are going to be thinking about is why do we need to ensure that schools are inclusive and create a sense of belonging for all? So just the context of why we're here, um, we had an event back in January in Slough and Sophie Christophe, the CEO of Phoenix Education, came along um, and there's been a number of conversations since then with the different grassroots communities who are doing some brilliant work in really empowering um, and enabling schools to do a better job when it comes to looking after staff from diverse backgrounds, but also children from diverse backgrounds too. So I'm going to hand over to introductions from each of our grassroots communities so we know who's here and who they're representing. And then we're going to ask them a series of questions. So, um, Penny, can you please introduce yourself first? Hi there. Um, so I'm Penny Radiger, and I'm one of the co-founders of the BAMED network and possibly we'll have another one of our founders joining us shortly. Um, so we've been asked a series of questions and so I thought I'd just go through those and answer them. So the first question was why should diversity, equity and inclusion be a focus for all schools and all educators this academic year? And I think we can all agree that world events have proved that we're in real trouble with regards how all sections of society are treated at all levels. So it should be a focus. But I think more than that, diversity, equity and inclusion should be a focus of all schools this year and always because school's purpose is to create the next generation of global citizens. And I think we've lost our way if we aren't fulfilling that purpose. Um, Diversity, equity and inclusion are the facts of societies around the world. And if we don't teach these things and focus on these things, we're lying to our students about how the world actually is. So I think, I hope that people will take the world events as um, impetus, but we'll just keep going forever with these issues. Um, And how the BAMED network works towards moving the agenda forward. So our network seeks to help people educate themselves around the issues, to connect with each other and to be actively committed to changing the system from within because we feel that that's the best way that we can affect change. So we deliberately work focus on working hand in hand as black, Asian and minority ethnic educators alongside together with white educators, um, working together to identify and dismantle structural racism, which is inherent in our education system, it's inherent in society. And we really strongly believe that if we don't work together, then we probably won't get as far as we could do. And we try to be intersectional in our approach as well, but uh, we, you know, we need to learn, keep learning and educating ourselves and challenging ourselves on that as well. Um, and how people can get involved? Well, probably the best place is to go to our website, which is www.bamednetwork.com. Um, and there you can check out all sorts of things. So we have um, 
local hub areas page where you can connect with local BAMED networks in your area. Um, if there isn't one in existence, we help people to set them up. We have a resources section with books, articles, podcasts, videos, and other ways that we can educate ourselves. Uh, in normal times, we put on events. And uh, this coming year, we're going to be putting on a monthly panel session discussing all of the different stages towards creating an anti-racist school. Um, and we also have a newsletter which you can subscribe to, which will ping into your inbox once a month with all sorts of goodies, um, job opportunities, articles, ideas and ways to connect. So that's about it. Brilliant. Thank you, Pam. Yeah, Alana's here. So, Alana, can I welcome you to the panel and just ask you, I know you probably didn't hear everything Penny said there, but tell tell our listeners a little bit about the journey BAMED has been on and perhaps what the future holds for BAMED as well. Uh, thank you and welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Uh, BAMED itself has been on quite a journey. We've only been three years in existence, although it feels like a lifetime when you're doing this work. Uh, so we started originally um, just focused on looking at the statistics on leadership and promotion into leadership for BAM our BAME community, because you're less likely to be promoted into leadership or become a head teacher. And the statistics year on year seem to focus on that. We have looked at what we can do in order to promote that. We've done run our conferences and spoke of topics of moving beyond unconscious bias um, so that it doesn't become a tick box activity. Everything we're looking at has to be about how do we take an action to drive change forward as opposed to having a conversation or doing a review about change happening. So we've really focused on that and we're partnering with all of our grassroots partners in order to make change happen. The future of BAMED, I think we're looking at how we can access more of our teachers. So we have a strong presence on social media, especially within our hubs. We're looking at how we can access teachers and give a tap on shoulder to teachers who are not present on social media and getting them to be a part of the network and knowing that the support is available to them as well. We're looking at how we can work with multi-academy trusts to help them change structures and to introduce them to the right people to help them bring change into multi-academy trust. So we look really strongly at the partnerships and how we can facilitate and be that sort of middle person introducing. You don't know someone, we do. Let me introduce you to someone who is incredibly high quality and knows how to do all of that work in this space. So we're looking into doing a lot more on that. And we're looking very much at our overarching strategy and how that can continue to bring action. So one of the recent ones that we've done in filling in a space would be our BAMED COVID um, risk assessment that we saw a space, we saw that it wasn't being filled and we therefore put something that would be a conversation starter for some people to use with, within their organizations. So we're looking to do more of that strategic work and get more of those active participants uh, alongside our call for action. So for us right now, it's not any more about the slogans or the ideas, it's now about bringing everybody who's to a point of action. Thank you, Anana. And can I just spotlight the speakers directory? Because I think everyone who's here today has got a bugbear with the fact that there's no excuse for events having all white male, all white men and female lineups. And I know the speakers directory is brilliant. Can you just um, explain to the audience, A, how can you join the directory? And B, how can you perhaps use the directory, please? If you'd like to join our directory, you need to send an email to bamed at outlook.com. 
and uh, with a short synopsis of your profile and an area that you think you'd be able to speak confidently on. So it has to be, we're looking for high quality speakers. And if you're not a high quality speaker yet, tell us that and we will try to put into work with you so that you can become one. And we're looking for subject experts. You put yourself, you send a lovely profile photo of yourself. We post that onto our website and therefore whenever there's any conferences, ideas, et cetera, people will contact you either directly or they will contact us and we will then link them on to you. So on our website, we also have the we also have um, advice on how to negotiate a salary because we do believe that your expertise should be paid for. Um, so we do have advice on how you can negotiate. And if you need additional support to prepare yourself for your first ever speaking gig, then please do let us know. We'll provide that support. If you're an experienced speaker and you're just looking to get more exposure, then um, please do send in your profile to our website and then we will load you on and we'll make sure that we help to promote yourself and your business as well. That's fab. Thank you, Alana. And for the people who are listening, please make sure you check that out and also share it. There's no excuse for any event organiser not to be referencing a brilliant talent bank of speakers. So thank you, Baymed. Let me let me move over now to Ruth Disability Ed. So Ruth, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the Disability Ed's journey and what the future holds? Yeah, um, our journey is a very slow burn. Um, we were actually at the first uh, um, Diverse Educators event. However, probably because we've got disabilities, um, it's a little bit slower. But this year, especially going into 2020, uh, we've got a very energetic development group um, and we're really looking to sort of um, take our place and, and stand up for all disabled educators. I think, um, you know, we get quite a lot of ableism around disability in that, you know, those physical disabilities that people have, they're very seen, but anything that's invisible, um, you know, it's very challenging for, for educators in the workplace. And I think we, we talk about uh, SEND students, but actually they are just young people with disabilities. They are protected under the Equality Act. And yet often they don't always get their, their needs met. And I think particularly during COVID, we've got two central issues that Disability Ed are looking at. Firstly, um, all of those young people for whom actually um, they, they've experienced long-term absences due to disabilities in the past, and yet for a long time people have seen them as forgotten people, and it's been very, very down to individual schools and individual people to make sure those people are educated. And, and so in terms of um, what's happened, we can now see that in reality, it's actually very easy to create resources and learning for young people who can't always get into school. And we will really be working to champion all of those young people so that, you know, beyond COVID, the COVID years, um, there are still excellent resources and support for people who are not, not in school. And secondly, um, on top of uh, the people with disabilities who may have been sort of self-isolating for much longer than anybody else, um, having to transition back into school, we've also got groups of uh, staff members now who will be coming back post-COVID symptoms, who will have had um, a second bout of, of, of random symptoms, you know, whether that's heart conditions, whether that's breathing conditions, respiratory conditions, or whether that's, you know, whether that's mobility issues. And actually part of disability 
Disabilities Ed's sort of main cause is to make sure that reasonable adjustments are in place and met for every individual person. So for us, you know, as a team, we've already started to look at for each, you know, each need there is sets of resources so that school leaders, which Disability Ed is very much for, Yes, we're representing disabled educators. Yes, we're amplifying their voices, voices and putting in support. But school leaders need disability ed. They need our expertise in reasonable adjustment and actually supporting staff and not seeing, you know, seeing disability as, um, you know, a problem to be resolved. I think there's a statistic that um, uh, my colleague Laura McConnell posted that if you've got a PhD, and you're disabled, you are less likely to get a job than if you have no qualifications at all. And I think in 20, 2020, that is a sad state of affairs. And we really have got to ensure that, you know, disabled educators can not only sort of be, be um, educators, but they can be out educators, that they can identify their disability and not be seen as problematic. Um, I think there was another survey that was done that said, you know, when, when leaders sometimes think of disability, the first thing that they think about is their fire plan and will the person be able to to get out of the building and in reality you know there is so much more to us and so many skills and talents that we we accrue because of our disability and not despite of it um so just thinking about you know some of those those questions you were asking around um, you know the what what are we doing to contribute you know we are writing disability awareness training and ableism training for school leaders and that will be ready at the start of term um we have a website that is be in development and if it's not ready we will just put the we'll put the resources out on twitter um we're, we're starting to publish reasonable adjustments guides um, i must um, point you all to a brilliant piece of research that was done by um, lynn haynes and maria turkenberg you know they looked at what would be an ideal framework for people with disabilities around uh, uh, reasonable adjustments. And they started their work because of ITT and students, uh, students training. And so those resources are brilliant, but we're gonna put one-sided sheets out for different aspects of, of the education system that people might not be able to access well. We're looking to, uh, to survey our, the workforce because the DfE, unfortunately, have really not been good at gathering disability information. The last survey was 2017. And the last set of data didn't even last uh, in 2019 didn't even include disability. So we want not only are people disabled, but what are those disabilities broken down into as well? Um, and and we're providing support materials for people. Um, to go and have those reasonable adjustment conversations because they've written their own support plan and are empowered to ask for them um, without feeling that they're an inconvenience as well. So if we're thinking about what people can do to support us, you know, first of all, become disability aware. The amount of people and, you know, leaders who have got no disability awareness, yet they're having line management conversations about reasonable adjustments. It's, it's not acceptable. You know, they're not challenging their own biases around disability. 
be an ally and really challenge ableism. You know, everything that happens. I hear students being described as, you know, neurodiverse students being described as picking and choosing if they can't attend a lesson, you know, and, and actually that is ableism, living and breathing, because you're not valuing that young person's life experience and their, their experiences in school. Um, I also think whilst you are COVID planning and planning for next year, keep disability and keep our protected characteristics right at the centre of all of the planning so that we are going forward and we are we are thinking about inclusivity and not exclusivity. The year group zones, you know, the changes to inclusion departments, people's safe spaces, they are all going to be a real challenge for transition because students will not go back to what they've experienced before and we've got to find the ways to make that much easier for them. Brilliant. Ruth, thank you so much. That, that was so comprehensive. And can I just ask you um, to share, I know we had a chat about sort of like the COVID impact on CPD and events and how actually it's made events more accessible perhaps to people with disabilities. Can you speak to that for a second about moving forward? If we resume back to face-to-face -face events, how we can be more inclusive perhaps? Yeah, um, definitely. I think that the accessibility, you know, the, the world has opened up for disabled people as well as closed in some areas. But actually in terms of events, I've been able to participate participate in many more conferences this year than I could physically with a with a physical disability and and it's been really good and I know that you know in terms of running an event that you know it could be quite hard but actually to have some streamed aspects to events going forward if you really genuinely want to be as inclusive as possible I would say to all leaders you know make sure that you're doing that if you're sending out images um, of your event make sure they've got alt text on them you know if you can get someone to sort of translate and, and do sign language as well. There are, there are really, really important things that we can do and we can do it more effectively because of technology. Fab, thank you so much, Ruth. Um, brilliant. I'm going to come to you next then, Nick, LGBT Ed. Do you want to give, give us the lowdown about what, what's happened, where you're going, how to get involved, please? Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, morning, everyone. It's great to see you all today and what an exciting um, event and discussion that this is. Um, so the three questions that we're going through, the first one was around uh, diversity and equity and why it's a focus and why it needs to be a focus, particularly this academic year. Um, LGBT, yeah, we're all about um, empowering educators to be their authentic school, uh, their authentic selves in schools and really um, allow themselves to be the role models that we needed to be when we were younger. Um, and we think that's always important. We think it's always incredibly important that um, young people um, see those role models and that also all educators in our school system have that right to be uh, visible and to be themselves and that's really you know incredibly important um in particular though i think this academic year there is going to be a huge need to think about well-being in its broadest sense for all of our students uh, coming back after this challenging time um, and we're going to need to make sure that we're thinking about that so how can we make sure that uh, young lgbtq plus um, students are are involved in that and also um, all staff as well um, we think that it's incredibly important this year we've also got compulsory sex and relationships education coming in so we need schools to be aware of that and think about how that's going to be addressed um, and we also need to think about broadly in society as well those hate crimes and those inequities that exist and that are faced by lgbtq plus people and indeed by people represented uh, through the different protected characteristics that we're talking about um, oh i'm sorry the um, signal isn't great. 
Um, I'm going to keep going and hopefully it gets a little bit better. I'll speak up a bit as well. Um, so in terms of um, what that means, we think that we need really authentic um, opportunities for um, educators. Um, and we think that there's a real need to make sure that the curriculum is representative of all young people um, and we do need to make sure that that is um, for LGBTQ plus people and that their identities are represented but also for people of colour, for disabled people, for women and for trans and non-binary people as well. It's incredibly important that young people see themselves reflected in the curriculums that they study as well as um, their peers and their teachers too. Um, it's really important that we have that. Um, so in terms of um, identities as well across the curriculum, um, the term that is often used is usualising as well. So making sure that um, we are just dropping in um, throughout the curriculum a, se a sense of identity and that scene is being incredibly important too. So we're going to make sure that we're thinking about that. Um, in terms of specifically LGBT ed, as an organisation and the kinds of things that we do, um, we do, um, and in normal times, of course, We'd hope to do a lot more CPD and um, offers that enable um, LGBT educators and allies to get involved and to make sure that they're thinking and developing and supported. Um, in however, it's um, seen as being really important. Um, we've got a support network too, and we use Twitter very regularly. And I'd absolutely encourage people to get involved with that. That's incredibly important, and um, that we can do that because it's a really good way of um, professionals connecting. Often it can seem quite isolating sometimes um, if you're um, in a school or if you're finding yourself in an environment where things aren't working as much or as well as you'd hope um, and Twitter can be a really valuable um, source for um, connecting and getting and uh, meeting people um, but there's other things too we've got um, our first education book coming out next year in 2021 it's called Big Gay Adventures in Education and we're very excited about sharing that and we think that it's going to be really key too. Um, and then we're also introducing a master's qualification in LGBT plus um, school leadership too uh, from November, which is in conjunction with the University of Buckingham. Um, and we think that those kind of things are going to be really important too. So we would just say in terms of really getting involved, do get involved because it's incredibly helpful, incredibly valuable. Um, if you don't already, please follow us on Twitter um, at LGBTEduk because then you can see about everything that's being done um, and you can get involved with um, the conversations and the discussions that are happening. Um, I moderate um, LGBT Ed chat on Thursday evenings which happen um, at 7pm during term time and um, they're weekly and um, hopefully a really valuable opportunity for educators to get involved and discuss issues that are happening that are pertinent to them and also um, across uh, um, the education system as well. Thinking about students and staff too, and it's important that we do both, um, is incredibly valuable. Um, we've got a mailing list as well, and we do encourage people to join that too, so that you can really stay in touch and make sure you're aware of everything that's happening. Uh, we've got a blog that we're always keen to um, have contributors towards. Um, and if you do have any questions or you want to find out more about how you can get involved, our email i've got it here i'm going to read it is inquiries at lgbted.uk um so, so i absolutely really encourage everyone to get involved um this support that um is out there is absolutely amazing and you see so much um solidarity and amazing networking being done by professionals across um you know many different schools and it's absolutely fantastic to have that i would just encourage everyone to see how much they can get involved 
involved and thank you very much and i hope i know there's been a few technical difficulties but i hope you've heard at least some of what i've had to say there thank you very much I was going to say thank you, Nick, for joining us from your holiday in Scotland. True commitment to the cause. And you were perfectly clear until you started talking, but we did see you and hear most of it. So thank you so much, so much for just carrying on. I'm sure people will be able to get 99% of what you said. So thank you. Um, Ruth, I'm going to swing back to you for a second, because I know we lost Cristada this morning, who was going to speak about Women Ed. Do you mind, as one of our England leads for Women Ed, just speaking to Women Ed before I go on to Benny to talk about Diverse Ed, please? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Women Ed is probably the old just of the Eds in terms of, um, you know, and, and Hannah up there was, uh, you know, one of the pivotal people in the movement at the start. It's five years old now. Um, and what has happened with Women Ed is that it's become global. And actually, um, it was felt that to strategically sort of keep, um, you know, England together and then the United Kingdom, um, that we that we actually break down into our individual countries as well. So Women Ed um, has, has been long trying to support women to break through the, the glass uh, ceiling and concrete ce- ceiling for our BAMED colleagues. Um, and, and, and actually, this year's pledge is all about, you know, increasing representation in leadership, particularly around uh, Black and Asian and minority ethnic groups who aren't represented at all. And, and I think, you know, that, that, that image of representation, it, you know, it is so important. Whoever you are, if you're not represented or you're not fe- feeling that there's an ear at the table to put forward your point of view, it is so demoralising because you can always be seen as an outsider and not an insider. So Women Ed um, is, is sort of moving forward and, and England had their first launch event, which was absolutely fantastic in that it was all new voices, not some of us as people who've been doing the rounds. It was new people talking about their current experiences in school. Um, and and one, of, one of the things, you know, the, the powerful things was, you know, those support networks, um, how important and how, how you know, um, supportive they are to grow um, people and to build confidence and we had speakers who had never spoken before spoken before and and they were such so brave so you know in terms of in girl girls in school there is still that element of you know sort of perpetuating gender stereotypes if i walk into an assembly i often and it's about it's about leadership we see sportsmen often being being promoted um we we sometimes when we're talking um about characteristics we're talking about characteristics and attributes of leaders who who do not fit into that mold and, and women ed really is there to continue that challenge but actually you know we recognize that we are also a group with multifaceted identities and i know benny's going to talk about that in a minute but but actually you know the we, we, working together is always going to make us stronger. So, so the more that we can can you know stand together um, as groups um, and go forward is really fantastic. So, nice thing is that we're looking at um, in Women Ed England to work with Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland to see what actually Women Ed means for the UK and and for our girls and, and women leaders going forward. Um, so, so in terms of what's happening. Lots of events. I know the regional leads are really sort of, you know, a bit in hiatus, but there've been some lovely little, some lovely um, launch uh, presentations via via technology, uh, and we're we're carrying on um, sort of fighting the good fight. And there's a global unconference in October if people are interested in in going to see that. Brilliant. Thank you, Ruth. And the second book's out in the spring, is it? Um, I think actually. I think well, the, 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 it's going to be ready in December, but the launch I think will be after that. 
Brilliant. Thank you for speaking twice today. Really appreciate it. I think it also shows the intersectionality of the fact that we have our feet in, in multiple camps. So thank you. <laughs> there you go. Which leads us beautifully on to Benny. I'm, I'm conscious I didn't introduce myself. So for those who didn't um, um, don't know who I am, I'm Hannah Wilson and I am the co-founder of Women Ed, but I'm also the co-founder of um, Diverse Ed. But my colleague Benny is here today and she's going to speak to that. So Benny, do you want to now please join us and, and tell us what you think about the situation? <laughs> Absolutely. So um, Hannah and I had many conversations um, when she was part of the Women Ed movement at the beginning. And one of the things we talked about was the fact that it was great that there were so many organisations at grassroots level talking about uh, identity and representation. Um, and I was really conscious as somebody who had been involved in Women Ed very early on, that it wasn't just um, my gender that was the uh, something that needed uh, amplification. It wasn't um, just my race, but my, my sexuality, my disability status. Um, and one of the things we talked about was this need for a space for intersectionality. Um, and intersectionality is a word that's really misunderstood. Um, and it's often criticized as being something that um, is almost like a top trumps of uh, you know, identities that, you know, you, if you are black, gay, disabled and a woman, perhaps that you are perhaps looking for more than somebody who is just a woman or just gay and I think those that terminology can be really unhelpful but we realized very quickly that there was need for a space to talk about um, the crossovers and to to make sure that they were role models for those kind of crossover identities um, and that's how diverse ed came about um, there were uh, conferences um, that Hannah hosted and um, the speakers at those events were fantastic at talking to and about those spaces in which you know, multiple identities um, had uh, uh, kind of space to, to discuss who they were and, and why that mattered in schools. Um, and talking about why that matters, it, it matters on a twofold level. So on one hand, it's a it's a personnel level. So you have members of staff who, you know, will fall under the Equalities Act, the protected characteristics in several different ways. And they perhaps do need careful consideration in in classrooms, in um, in the spaces, in, in representation in the curriculum. Um, and certainly you can't just lump people into one category. They're, you've got to be aware of them as an individual. And that's where Diverse Ed really kind of sits, uh, talking about the individual with, with all of its facets. Um, so so yes, we, we talked about the idea that we needed to be represented, but that the freedom to be all of your identities um, and to uh, to present yourself truthfully to your colleagues and your students was particularly important. And on the second level, for our students um, and the curriculum that they study, um, we aren't just sort of you know one identity to them either. Um, that yes, we are teacher, and yes, we might be Asian, or yes, we might be uh, female, but we are, we might also also be gay we might also be disabled and that people don't come as these two-dimensional characters um, who power down at the end of the night and then power back up in the morning um, we have these lives um, that are rich and full of experience that we can share and the ability and the freedom to share that was particularly important in in diverse ed um, and in terms of the curriculum something that I'm particularly interested in uh, you know I've always said it's not about trying to cram in as much representation as possible but to make it a fair representation of the world that we live in so that the work for equity 
um, is amplified. Um, you know, it's not about someone being better than someone else or, you know, the more gay you are, the more disabled you are, the more brown you are, the better. It's really about how, you know, how, what, what does the world look like in all of its glory? And sometimes it looks like several identities living um, in a particular shell. And, and I think that's becoming even more important now. And, you know, as Penny quite rightly said, we've got this, uh, uh, what Edward Said calls appalling tribalism. Um, and I think in times of strife, when we've got uh, environmental issues, when we've got economic issues, those things are really exacerbated. So there's never been a better time to really think about um, the role of the fully rounded educator, the person who who understands the lenses um, through which children see their world um, and to be able to kind of give those lenses uh, enough um, relevance and significance in the classroom is a job for all of us um, and it's a job for social cohesion it's a job for harmonious communities it's a job of anti-racists and it's a job for campaigners for all of the the protected characteristics so that, that's who diverse ed uh, is I suppose as a, as a movement and um, really in terms of what we're doing uh, Hannah I know that you're launching the diverse ed website fairly soon and we've been working on that um, and the conversations around the intersectionality of all of the groups that are represented at grassroots level is a conversation that's going to continue over the next few years and hopefully uh, really serve as a, a hub for everybody uh, to have that amplified amplified voice um, and uh, the diverse ed website will be a resource for all of the practical uh, the protected characteristics so that you can if you are um, you know crossing characteristics or if you've got one particular characteristics that re was relevant to you you've got a one-stop shop to be able to find them and it will amplify and highlight the voices of the other grassroots movements as well so it will be a really useful resource for the community um, whether you have those protected characteristics or not I think for us, it's very much about education so that you can be a, an effective ally and you know what allyship really means. And I know, Hannah, you've done a lot of work around that. So it's a very exciting time. Um, and I'm really glad to be here today to share uh, our ideas on, on equality and diversity and equity um, and looking forward to, to hearing what everyone else says. Thank you, Benny. Um, very comprehensive history and context there. And I think we're all very aware of the fact that a lot of education books are written by people from a particular gender and a particular race. And it's exciting to see so many books popping up at the moment from people from, from diverse backgrounds, but also talking about diversity. So, Benny, back to you. Tell us about your book, please. What's it about and when's it out? Um, OK, so my book, A uh, Little Guide for Teachers, uh, Diversity in Schools, is out at the end of October. It is very much a beginner's guide to diversity in schools and it focuses on different areas. So, you know, the, the practical things that teachers can do to um, kind of almost start the process of thinking about equity in their classroom, to the curriculum, to those broader structures within schools. It's published by Sage and it is available for pre-order now from um, that rather large uh, seller of books that I shall not name in public that you can you can go to and you can click on um, but you can also get that from the Sage website as well so I'm looking forward to hearing people's feedback um, and hopefully there'll be more of that where it comes from so 
Brilliant. Thank you, Benny. I've had the privilege of reading it. It's a very helpful way to get people thinking about how to frame their work, particularly we have to be really aware of the fact that everyone starts this journey at a different point. They come from a different experience, different awareness um, and different level of understanding. And as people sat here who've been doing this work for five years and beyond, and as people who are starting this work in September. So we meet you where you are and we walk that journey with you. Um, Read the Diverse Educators website. It is dropping on 1st of September. And the idea is it is just a cohesive, coherent space to signpost out. I think my thing is that those of us who are doing this work know who everyone is and know where the organisations are and know how to signpost people. But I always put myself in the shoes of if I was that um, white female head teacher in a shire, not on Twitter, where would I start? How would I know even where to find the speakers, the resources, the websites? So it's going to be a signposting out website. It's not It's not to replace anything that already exists. Um, we have got a few questions coming up. One question that keeps coming up in my spaces are, what about early years? That We've got a lot of primary school heads, nursery leads who really want to do this work. And has anyone got any thoughts? I'm probably going to come to you first as being a primary school head teacher. But like we've got questions about how do you do ableism with primary? How do you do LGBT with primary, particularly in early years? Any, any thoughts um, from you first of all, Alana? Um, I think it has, well, with primary curriculum, you need to start there. So wherever possible, you start to insert lots of books that will bring about a conversation about ableism because children notice and primary age children notice and bless them. They have the honesty that they will ask. And when they ask, I think teachers have to be well prepared. So the sort of training that Ruth is offering on ableism, um, that would be really important to have having your having read widely on diversity, that would be important to have because we'll help you to guide that conversation that those children will have. Then putting things into places where they will be able to access them. So now there are dolls that are in wheelchairs. You can buy that and have that in your play area. You can have characters that are different colors, different ethnicities, different dress sense. You can have all of those things as a part embedded into your curriculum to initiate a conversation. And at primary level, it's very much about initiating a conversation and then bringing the information onto them afterwards. And I would also go as far as to say, and having that conversation with parents as well so that parents at their dinner tables know exactly what your school is saying and they're able to carry on that conversation and being very open and clear with your parents that in our school diversity is just as important to our wider education because we're preparing global citizens so in our school what we do is we have that conversation with our parents so they're very aware of what we're doing in the classroom they know very much that their children are going to get a diverse range of books that's going to refer to all of the protected characteristics and they know that the adults in the school are going to have conversations if the children ask questions and expect our parents to carry on those those conversations brilliant thank you lana and, and Penny, as someone who trained in secondary but now you're a deputy head for curriculum across and all through school what's the learning points there from your secondary lens now looking at primary well, certainly working in an all through has been fascinating because, you know, we think about the journey that our students go on and, you know, secondary teachers can be guilty sometimes of, of thinking they, they've got an uncut gem that they then have to shape. But actually, they've already been molded in, in some way, shape or form by the time they come to us. And I think secondary teachers do need to be aware of that. Um, I'm really grateful to primaries for the work that they've been doing on diversifying their reading, providing um, representations in terms of characters. Um, and in, 
in terms of differing families so that actually some of the work of secondary education isn't so hard that you don't start from the point zero you've already got this kind of background of knowledge um, that's being provided to them and, and certainly you know looking at building a curriculum from three to 19 I've been working with the primary team and the primary team are fantastic they're an absolute treasure trove you know they they know so much about early years readers and you know even at EYFS we're thinking about representation um, which you know maybe 10-15 years ago just wasn't part of the conversation certainly not in my experience um, and it gives us a solid base to, to on which to kind of build knowledge um, and I've always said that a curriculum is uh, that a diverse curriculum is not about cutting out knowledge it's not about replacing knowledge it's very much about building a broader horizon for our students and the more we can work together with primary educators from EYFS upwards to be able to do that the more powerful the experience is for the child um, to go into the world understanding that you know it's not just a particular type of person one gender one race one particular um, ability level that is able to contribute to the universe um, and how wonderful is that for our students so yes it, on a curriculum level it's incredibly powerful Thank you, Benny. And coming to you, Penny, just thinking about the fact that quite often um, diversity identity sits within the kind of the SMSC, PSHE or philosophy for children space. I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. Can you tell everyone about Lifter, please, and how Lifter is a resource for the curriculum, please? Yeah, for sure. Um, so my day job is uh, working with a Finnish British organisation called Lifter, and we create uh, immersive worlds that children can explore that are um, based around real documentary film footage. And um, the point of what we do is to allow children and their teachers to to have some time to think deeply, to explore, to discuss, and um, to sort of be in the space of where other people are. And I think one of the things I wanted to say about early years is that we have this kind of, um, I think there's this kind of myth that little children are sort of pure and don't come with these biases, but they they absorb from before they're even born, they'll absorb the expectations and the biases of those around them. So I think the work that Lifter's doing is making sure that there is a space in schools for honest discussion. And for example, one of our um, one of our story worlds is set in the Finnish opera and they get to meet a male ballet dancer who talks quite clearly about his struggle coming to terms with his masculinity and being a ballet dancer when really he wanted to be a hockey ice hockey player and he's quite muscly and quite sort of male um, in a heterosexual stereotypical way. Now when we ask children after seeing this you know so can all people be ballet dancers that yes 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 and then you say to them would you go to a ballet lesson if you were a boy and they go no Oh, no, no, no. So it's not solved just in a moment. It has to be about allowing these conversations and unpicking where bias comes from and how it's so deeply ingrained in us that even though our brains are telling us one thing, our kind of internal absorbed knowledge is telling us. Thank you, Penny. And ultimately, this conversation today is about the wider conversations that we need to be having in our schools. So Ruth, if I can come back to you, I mean, what are your thoughts about intersectionality and how we can perhaps like speak to it or teach it to children, but also build it into training for adults? So we are thinking about that fully formed human being, that whole person and not what label are we wearing today? 
Absolutely. I, I think I think it's 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 understanding that um, every every time you approach any issue, whether it's talking about a student's special needs or whether it's holding an assembly, you are role modelling in, intersectionality, um, and and therefore there will be there will be some challenges around that because people don't always see or or you know hear hear what is happening. But I think, I mean, you know, thinking of our freedoms too, mine was very much around a holistic view of a young person um, and, and, and an adult. Um, and therefore, we, we have to, you have to actively think about what, how, that, how that looks across the course of a year in terms of everything that you do um and and if 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 you aren't in the leaderships at le you know middle or uh, senior leaders planning planning for that planning for intersectionality and pa planning planning for the whole you know we get these stereotypical views of sen students and we forget that they're they're still adolescents there's still people who are who are coming to terms with relationships who are coming to terms with themselves as an individual and and actually we if if we don't build the right climate which is very much focused on people and human beings interacting and the relationships that they have with other people if we don't put that at the heart of our schools and we continue to put other things at the heart of our schools we will not move forward on these issues so intersectionality boils down to human beings interacting with other human beings in an appropriate manner that, that builds enables them to grow and shine and i think whether that's staff or students that's what school leaders have really got to grasp grapple with and they have really got to commit wholeheartedly to that message Thank you, Ruth. Ab absolutely. Um, and we have had one tongue in cheek comment, as you can imagine. Um, someone commenting on the fact that are we a truly diverse panel because we haven't got any straight white men here today or we've got a lack of men. Um, and I've just added up in my head from the six of us and how well I know you all. I know we address collectively six of the nine protected characteristics. I think we're doing pretty well from visible and invisible protected characteristics. Any thoughts on that from any, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot, but anyone like to speak to that issue that we are very quick at the moment to call out who is missing from the space. And actually, um, the person who said that, I've given him quite a lot of challenge in his organisation. So let's get a penny and then Benny. That, that, that rhymed, penny first. <laughs> well, I can say that, you know, I, I feel secure that I'm representing a heterosexual male white patriarchal society because that's how I've been educated. So I don't feel worried. And I'm not saying that as a joke either. I don't feel worried that I won't be um, sort of championing that section of society um, because because it's so ingrained in me and and actually the the point is that I have to make more of an effort to to kind of champion my sisters and champion my you know disabled colleagues my gay colleagues my black Asian and minority ethnic colleagues so I don't think it's it's such a problem that they're not here because we all know how to represent their views. Thank you, Penny. And Benny, what do you want to add? Um, without wanting to sound 
tongue in cheek myself. I think the question is a little bit uh, when is International Men's Day? Um, and at this point, I always say it's November the 19th and, and every day. Um, and I certainly think that, you know, the question is valid. I, I recognize uh, when we talk about diversity, it does encompass the experience of a, a kind of white heteronormative experience. And I do get that. But there are a lot of conferences that happen that talk about education and representation and recruitment um, and curriculum that are dominated by those voices. And I think it's nice sometimes to have this space to be able to um, have a voice that's not drowned out by um, the, the majority. Um, and certainly uh, I'm, I'm willing to have discussions about that offline. Uh, if, if, if that offer is taken up, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk, talk about it. I don't think anyone here is saying that the, the views of the straight white man um, aren't valid. I think they are saying that they are heard a lot um, and there's space for this as well um, as, as their voices. Yeah, that's what I was going to add, Benny. Exactly that, that every space is a white male space and every event has a white male straight speaker. And actually, let's check our privilege and listen for a change and not do the talking. Um, and that event that um, Penny and Angie and um, Amy and Alison and I organised back in June about Black Lives Matters, I mean, I was there as a straight, white, able-bodied woman listening because actually we needed to listen to the black women's experience and we needed to learn from the lived experience. And I have been staggered by the number of men who won't come to events unless they're speaking because they don't want to just come to an event and sit and listen. And actually, we need to be there and listen and absorb and not. And that, I used it yesterday on the webcast. We have two ears and one mouth and we need to do more listening and less talking. So that that is just my point to that. Um, Nick, I wanted to come to you about allyship. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of like one of the words at the moment. And, I mean, a lot of people want to lean into the space with diversity and equity and want to help, but need a bit of guidance on perhaps how to do that in an authentic way. Dream, what, what are your tips from some, for some of the listeners about how they can commit to this work and do it in a way that is purposeful but not patronising? Um, thank you, Hannah. And I think on the comment that you were all just um, discussing that, um, you learn so much. Um, it's advantageous um, to white men to hear from a diverse range of speakers. So you're actually getting a lot anyway, I would suggest. Um, I think that it's um, incredibly important that we have allies. I think sometimes actually allies can be in a more powerful position than they realise within um, the school system to actually affect change. Um, and, you know, speaking um, from a perspective of LGBT, LGBTQ plus um, educators, but it might be something that other speakers could add whether or not that would be useful. Actually, sometimes um, if you are standing up for your colleagues and if you are standing up for your students in a place that is less vulnerable, you can actually really be very helpful and valuable in terms of that. And I think I personally find it incredibly helpful when um, straight members of staff, for example, um, help um, on on this because um, it's, it's incredibly valuable. But what I would say is it needs to be coming from a place where you do it um, after having listened to or after having spoken with um, the person that you are claiming to be an ally for. I don't think an ally is now. I think an ally uh, being you be you be an ally. You do allyship. It's not about just identifying and saying I'm an ally. But it's listening to members of um, staff. It's listening to people and then saying that you stand up for them based on what they're telling you. I think it's incredibly important that you do that. So in terms of schools, you know, for LGBT ed, follow us on Twitter, even if 
if you don't necessarily identify as being LGBTQ+, because you can learn so much about um, our experiences and what's going on. I think that's incredibly important um, that um, people from different protected characteristics also get that, um, because you can actually, you can advocate for people in a really valuable way without speaking for them and without speaking over them. And I think that's actually really Thank you, Nick. And absolutely, it's also about the different groups advocating for one another and being allies to one another as well. So does anyone else want to add that add to that question about allyship and any tips for the audience? Alana, do you want to jump in? Uh, I think for us, it's been quite a journey because for us, we base most of our work on with Professor Paul Miller, where he talks about white sanction and how to avoid a meritocracy. So when you have your white heterosexual heteronormative male, um, what you're looking for from them in order for them to be qualified as an ally and in order to allow that space at the table. Because it's, part of it is about creating that space at the table and expanding the table so that you have more diverse thoughts. But part of it is about what happens when you're, when that diverse person is not at the table. So the conversations that happen after that disregard the points of view of your colleagues. And that's where white allyship comes in really clearly. because. A white heteronormative male is going to have access to spaces that I will not be in. Someone will not say to my face, oh, a black woman talking about race. But they will say it behind my back. And that's the point when you need your allies to be able to be there to stand up and say, well, actually, what the point she's making is we are going to be stronger, we're going to be more profitable, we're going to be much better because we have that. And that is true allyship. And it's not so much about, oh, I'm fighting for this injustice, but it's about in those quiet spaces, in those moments, when those subtle sort of undermining commentary is made about the protected characteristics, that's the point when you really, really stand up and be there and represent for your colleagues and for what you know is right and equitable. Thank you, Ilana. And it is, it's like the words from my mouth there, it's about doing what's right and not doing what's right when there's someone listening. I go back to that analogy about the kid who picks up litter when the head teacher's watching them pick up litter, as opposed to the kid who picks up litter when no one's watching. And it's about doing those little things, the right things all the time and collectively make, we make a massive difference. Penny, do you want to um, add? Yeah, I just want to pick up the point about performativity on it. Um, so often allyship happens um, through very quiet, very, um, sort of pointed ways so you can be an ally through um, supporting somebody with their application nobody needs to know about that you can be an ally through donating money to to a cause or through you know helping supporting somebody get through their studies or whatever it is you know allyship should you should be looking for it and you should be using a piece of your privilege that you have, um, you know, it should cost you a little bit in time, in money, in whatever, uh, in inconvenience, but it doesn't need to be performative and it doesn't need to be speaking up and endangering yourself by, you know, talking up and having an argument with people. It's about really supporting people, getting to where they, they need to get to. Thank you, Penny. And one of the questions, I'm, I'm going to ask you another question, Benny, because we're running out of time, but a question that's come up from the um, chat as well is like, how collaboratively do we all work together? And how are we collectively trying to shape the agenda? So, Benny, I just wanted to wonder whether you could just speak about the, um, the diversity roundtable we have. Absolutely. I was going to talk about that because that's a that's allyship in action. And then it's an intersectional allyship as well, where um, 
a couple of weeks ago now, uh, there were, I think it was over 40 people in a virtual meeting, uh, the Diversity Roundtable. And it was incredible to see the range of experiences and the range of uh, viewpoints that were at the table talking about diversity and talking about inclusion. And one of the things that came up really clearly was this kind of renewed need for that uh, collective movement. Um, there are, at the moment, things happening at government level in withdrawing of funding for coaching programs, um, from a shift away to looking at representation in the teaching force, for example, um, that really do need addressing and really do need a collective effort. So that diversity roundtable was incredibly important in bringing together educators who represent a range of educational establishments and and some of those establishments do not necessarily fit into the kind of grassroots protected characteristics movements they are main scale educational establishments who are coming to the table to say we strongly believe that your work is important and and in that we're not just talking about allyship for each other we're talking about allyship for our students um, because they their their life chances their pipelines into careers are are at risk and certainly when we've got this kind of global pandemic um, and global economic issues it, it's going to be even more important in years to come to have that collective action um, so the diversity roundtable um, has, is, is going to be meeting regularly um, and the agenda is open for contribution but very much focuses on what can we do um, as a group of people as a group of adults and organizations to be able to ensure that protected characteristics are remain protected um, and not just protected but supported and, and amplified thank you benny and absolutely i mean we all work in collaboration although we all have our own foci um, but equally it's about working in that coherent and cohesive space and what we want to collectively do is actually to shape the agenda and, and work with the DfE on the strategy because I think it's fair to say that there's been a strategy but has it had the desired impact over the last few years um, so please watch um, watch this space for more opportunities to join in with um, events from all of the grassroots um, groups with the diverse ed launch and also with those um, diversity roundtables so my final question to everyone the theme for the festival is freedom to learn and the different frame points are around freedom from or freedom to I'm really interested for each of you just to finish off your contribution today with your kind of your hopes your vision for education with what you what freedoms you would like to see so i'm going to go top top around the um group so penny you're first what 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 does freedom mean to you for the system well it's i don't think we can get it but i'd love freedom from political interference in education if we could just separate education from politics then we would be able to actually educate the children the way that we want to here here um nick what's your, what's your vision for freedom um, I think freedom um, to be your authentic self um, as an educator and as a student in 2020, people should be um, respected for whoever they are. And it's incredibly important that that happens both for staff and for students. Thank you, Nick. Um, and Lana, how about you? I'd say freedom to listen. So freedom to understand diverse perspective and to understand that there are lots of different ideas and the freedom for us to listen to each other and deeply try to connect with each other. Thank you, Alana. Ruth, what are your thoughts? I would like freedom from the quantitative measurement of people and freedom to 
um, be person-centred and uh, create educational experiences that represent everybody. Wow, thank you, Ruth. And Benny, what are your thoughts? I think for me, it's always freedom to dream. Our students go through our classrooms and they they see themselves around around the world and the freedom to be able to be whoever they want to be, regardless of what their starting points is always the role of an educator. So freedom to dream is mine. And I think mine is freedom to acknowledge that we've got it wrong and freedom to accept that we need to do things differently. If we keep doing things the same, we're going to keep getting the same outcomes. And I think the energy in the agency we have at the moment and the opportunity for change is really, really ripe. It would be absolutely sacrilege if we didn't grasp it and we didn't actually actively make a difference come September for every single adult and every single child um, in our schools. So we are bang on time to close our panel. Thank you so much, all of you, for giving up an hour of your time during your summer holidays. It's much appreciated. Um, have a fantastic fantastic August and we look forward to seeing you all at future events. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freedom to Learn podcast. For more information about our work, check out our website at freedomtolearn.uk and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.